Well, welcome to this edition of the DSI Security Services Podcast, The Security Evolution, where we talk about the latest trends and topics around the private security industry. This is episode two. Uh, I really enjoy talking to Michael Crane, the CEO of Secure Risk out of Chicago, Illinois. Uh, we discussed workplace violence prevention and what organizations can do to effectively combat this problem that continues to be an issue even during these unsettling times. Mike has got over 30 years of experience in the private and public sector, and most recently he served as the chair of the technical committee for the ASIS International Workplace Violence and Active Assailant Prevention, Intervention, and Response Standards. So we talk about that as well. I would encourage you to check that out and make that a part of your workplace violence planning. If you hadn't already done so, check out episode one of the Security Evolution, where I talk to Vice President and Chairman of the Board, Alan Clark, about DSI's past, present, and their future. So give that a listen as well. And subscribe to DSI's YouTube channel for further updates. Hope you enjoy this episode. Well, Mike, thanks once again for joining us here today. I appreciate your time. I've been looking forward to this episode of the Security Evolution podcast. And before we go any further, I'd like our listeners to know who is Mike Crane. So talk a little bit about your, your work in the industry and uh, specifically how you've worked throughout preventing workplace violence in the past 30 years. Sure. Well, I currently am CEO of a company called Securis, which is my company. We provide uh, security consulting and workplace violence prevention and active shooter training. Uh, I go back 40 years as being an attorney. And for about 30 of those years, I was corporate counsel or general counsel for a number of security and investigative firms. I put together my legal experience for human resources and security and uh, developed an expertise on workplace violence prevention. And that goes back to the early 90s, at which time uh, I was chairman of the Crime and Loss Prevention Council or committee of ASIS International. And that was the council that oversaw workplace violence. And through them, working with a number of uh, governmental personnel uh, from the FBI, et cetera, we did a lot of uh, presentations and a lot of uh, consulting with a lot of uh, uh, corporate and uh, governmental uh, entities throughout the years. Uh, back in 2000, ASIS established a standards and guidelines commission uh, which was really novel at the time to put guidelines and standards in the security industry. I was asked to be part of that initial uh, committee. And I then oversaw in 2005, the creation of a workplace violence prevention guideline. And so that was in existence from 2005 to 2011, when the uh, ASIS hierarchy decided to convert and create standards instead of guidelines. So we created an American national standard of workplace violence prevention in 2011, and that has to be reviewed every number of years. And just recently in 2020, I oversaw the revision again of the workplace violence prevention standard, but what we added this time was an annex for active assailant. And so uh, we can certainly go into it in a lot more detail as far as the value of this workplace violence prevention standard an active shooter annex. 
Yeah, before we dive into the details of this newly published standard, uh, you had mentioned that there's a lot of information in this new standard that really delineates between workplace violence, active shooter, and active assailant. Uh, I'm sure the people listening and watching this have heard the term active shooter quite a bit. We'll talk about the difference in active shooter and active assailant. What's different about those two terms? Well, active shooter certainly refers to use of a weapon. Active assailant uh, talks about any type of weapon. So it could be a car, a knife, anything that creates uh, basically a crime scene that's used. And that uh, we incorporated active assailant into the workplace violence because it really is a subset of workplace violence that occurs in the workplace. And the difference in my mind in my, uh, is the, uh, the presence of blood. So typically when you think about a workplace violence incident, it's a threat or it's a fight or something like that. It doesn't become a crime scene. But when you talk about an active assailant or active shooter situation, that becomes a crime scene and there's really blood involved and it could be serious injury or death as a result of it. And so the parameters and the protocols are certainly different when you're talking about something like that versus just a threat. Not that, not that it's immaterial, but it's certainly different than an, uh, a serious crime or serious injury. Yeah, we get certainly fixated on the active shooter term. And as you mentioned, when those incidents occur, there's certainly a lot of, of uh, fatalities and injuries. And it, it's certainly a serious incident that occurs at the workplace. But uh, we've also seen in this country and throughout the world that uh, mass attacks do happen with vehicles, knives, explosives as well. So I'm glad the standard does have uh, some language that talks about things just beyond the active shooter uh, incident as well. And we're talking about the workplace violence prevention uh, and active assailant prevention, intervention, and response standard. And you chaired that technical committee. Um, and before, again, we get into some of the details of the standard, we hear that this is an ANSI standard that ASIS International publishes. Uh, what does that mean when we say an ANSI standard? Well, it's the American National Standard. And what that requires if a, if a standard is certified by ANSI, it has to go through a whole series of procedures and protocols. It has to be a uh, basically independent uh, standard made up of a technical committee. We had over 150 people from various walks of life, basically not necessarily the security industry, but uh, psychology, uh, government, et cetera. And it is an unbiased view of, uh, of putting together uh, a draft. Draft has to be voted upon. Uh, the draft was then distributed and there was over 700 comments and it took over two years to go through all those comments individually to resolve them and determine whether they should be incorporated into the standard or it wasn't appropriate to do so. And so uh, after two years of doing it, uh, in May of this year, it was released and it's now currently published. Yeah, a very long, rigorous process. And as you pointed out, it's not just security professionals getting together, it's end users, it's, it's people with backgrounds that deal with issues at the facility level. So a very varied approach in, in making sure that all the voices are heard throughout this process. Let's talk about the standard for a minute. Give me an overview. How does this standard really approach prevention and how workplace violence can be avoided? 
Well, when you think about workplace violence, uh, we hear about people, the old terminology, people going postal or snapping and doing something. And experience and research has shown that that basically does not happen. There's always basically warning signs of behavior that's unacceptable. And the idea is to instruct your employees, supervisors, managers, and executives what to look for, number one. And number two, when they observe behavior that is inappropriate, to report it. And so once it's reported, that's when uh, what's called a threat management team, a multidisciplinary approach to handling the situation from various elements within the corporation makes a determination of what's the best way to approach this. But again, it starts at the very beginning and it should start when a new employee is onboarded and then every year after that, re-establishing the fact that these are the things to look for because it's behavior that will really indicate what a potential problem. Yeah. And then the, the standard goes into prevention and training, which is upfront, response, uh, if God forbid a situation happens, and then the recovery phase of how you get back to it. And so when we talk about recovery, uh, there's a big difference between an active assailant incident and a workplace violence incident. Uh, if there's an injury, somebody's having a heart attack, every work stops until the first responders come, the ambulance comes, takes that person away, but then people go back to work. With an active assailant situation, it becomes a crime scene. And you may not be able to go back to work for a week or so, or even longer. And so your, act, your uh, business continuity plans and how you, your business continuity and uh, prevention or uh, proactive uh, thoughts with regard to what do I do about my company certainly kicks into place. Yeah, and that's an excellent point. You know, we certainly want to prevent things from happening, but when they do occur, there has to be plans for, for after the fact, uh, things like employee counseling, and as you pointed out, a business continuity. Uh, you mentioned a great point earlier about having a multidisciplinary approach. Uh, if, if I'm just starting out with a workplace violence or active shooter or active assailant a prevention program, who do I need to call to the table uh, to get that process started? Well, it has to start at the top. So the whole workplace violence prevention theory and program has to be from the top down. So the senior executives of the corporation have to believe in it. And if in fact they give their blessings, then it goes to the development of a workplace violence prevention policy, which is probably the hardest part of this whole thing to determine what would work within a company structure or governmental agency structure. And so that's legal involved in security and human resources. And all three are needed to create a policy. Then once that policy is created and approved, at that point, you wanna develop uh, what's called a threat management team, which is comprised, again, multidisciplinary, but for sure security, human resources, legal. Uh, if you don't have the expertise, could be an outside third-party psychologist or a behavioral analyst that could uh, uh, implement their, their expertise into it. But it is, there's not one person that has shoulders big enough to make a decision when in fact a threat comes in as to what potentially could be done 
and how to best approach it so that uh, any potential threat is minimized. That's got to be viewed from all different perspectives. Uh, there's a lot of issues that come into play when we talk about handling uh, threats or even acts of violence at the workplace. Um, as we know, there's many different types of environments. There's many different types of workplaces. And uh, as we sit here in 2020, the workplace is changing like never before. And I want to touch on that in a minute. But if I'm looking at implementing a workplace violence prevention program, or I'm looking at this standard as a baseline, um, how do we implement that in different environments? Does this standard apply to all environments? Yeah, this standard really takes a, originally I would say it was a 30,000 foot view. Today I'd say it's a 20,000 or 15,000 foot view. Uh, gives you the broad perspective, the policy and procedures that should be implemented, but it leaves it up to the individual governmental agency or company depending on their size, the employees they have, the different departments they have to create their own structure. But the standard gives you the basic guidelines and format to create a policy and a program of workplace violence prevention. And how much importance and emphasis do you place on employee training and engagement? You mentioned before, you know, starting at the top, making sure that there's that executive buy-in. Um, but how important is it to make sure that every level of employee is trained on how to spot these warning signs or what the program is? It's really imperative. I mean, that is the crux of preventing something from happening. Again, people just don't snap. If it's an employee uh, that is a suspect, there may be behaviors uh, that are observable. If a person has a propensity for violence that is uh, notated, and if it's a third party, uh, a domestic violence situation, the victim who may be an employee also exhibits behavior that should be reported. And so half the, half the problem is observing, learning about what behaviors of our, the, learning what behaviors are critical. And then the second part of that is reporting it up the stream to your supervisor manager. And putting on my legal hat, once an employee indicates that they have a concern and they tell a manager or supervisor, that's all they have to do to prove their case if, God forbid, something should happen. That manager and supervisor have to be taught what to do when they receive something. Typically, I shouldn't say typically, but many, many times, a manager or supervisor does not want to report it because it would indicate poorly on them being an effective manager. And you're not really stabbing anyone in the back when you're reported, but what you're doing is preventing something from happening. Uh, an employee goes to work uh, five days a week, typically. And so if, in fact, somebody's after somebody, they know where they are for the hours that they work. And so it's a matter of how do they get in. And that's where security comes into play. What access controls are there at the facility to stop third parties from coming in that are not allowed? Yeah, we don't like to think of, you know, legal ramifications, but it is a very real uh, scenario that happens in the aftermath of these, these active shooter, active assailant incidents. So uh, really having that training, as you pointed out, is very key because you are going to be judged on the actions that you took uh, when you receive complaints or reports of threats. And so having that training uh, from the front line all the way up to management is very important. 
Um, I mentioned briefly earlier about the new normal, the remote working and people uh, being furloughed and being sent home from this, this uh, typical workplace scenario that we've all become accustomed to. And now many people are working from their kitchens and their living rooms. Um, most would say we don't have to worry about workplace violence in those scenarios. Uh, what have you seen here in the last few months that maybe really counter that argument? Well, two scenarios. One is the layoffs and furloughs that are occurring. And so that creates unnecessarily or unusual stress on that employee that is being furloughed or terminated. And so potentially they could become a workplace violence offender. And so that's situation number one of what are you doing to alleviate potential problems from a terminated or laid off employee? What you want to create is a soft landing. You want to create something that's not going to create a situation that's going to come back to bite the company or other employees. But the second situation is domestic violence is on the uprise. And so if a person, an employee is at their house, uh, potentially domestic violence situations can occur. The liability aspect that you talked about uh, comes to a company when they're made aware of something. And so that's why I made reference before, when a manager or supervisor is told, that puts the burden on the company. Uh, same thing with a domestic violence situation. If the employee tells a manager, supervisor, or an executive that there's a problem while they're working at home, now they're placed on notice. And then the question becomes, what can you do about it? Put that person outside the home, put them in another facility that you may have, et cetera. But that's where the liability pops up and those are the two situations more prevalent today with COVID. And all great points. Again, we're facing things we never thought we would face this year and workplace violence is unfortunately a part of that reality as well. Uh, well, these are all areas that I think this standard addresses very well. So if someone wants to get a copy of this standard or learn more about this, this topic, where would they go? They go to the ASIS International website, which is www.asisonline.org, and go to the uh, standards and guidelines section, and they'll be able to order a copy of the uh, of the standard. Yeah, and Mike, I would just mention too that I've reviewed the new standard. I think it's excellent. So I want to personally thank you for chairing that committee. Uh, I think it's very timely and a great work, and I would encourage everyone to get a copy of it and integrate that into your program. I agree. Thank you very much. And Mike, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you being on this episode. Hope to talk to you again soon. Very good. Thank you, sir.